scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 7. Some of that lion imagery that we just sang of in Psalm 22 uh, comes up here also. It's on page 530 in your uh, pew Bible, a Psalm of David. In fact, a Shigion of David, um, some kind of musical or liturgical term uh, perhaps related to lament. It says that David... Uh, saying this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Before we um, read just a word about that, we don't um, actually read of this Cush, the Benjaminite, anywhere else in Scripture, and so we don't know exactly um, who he is or when this is. Uh, But we do know that Benjamin was the the tribe of Saul. So this may be early in the David-Saul conflict, um, or we also read of another Benjaminite in 2 Samuel chapter 16, Shimei, who cursed and falsely accused David. Again, actually in 2 Samuel 20, there's another Benjaminite, Sheba, who revolts against David. And so any one of these situations, maybe the the context where Cush speaks these words against the king, but um, whatever or whenever it was, um, here we read David's response as he entrusts himself to the Lord. It says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest, like a lion, they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, If there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Congregation, as we said, we don't know exactly um, who Cush was. We don't 
um, have all of the details of when this took place, uh, but we do know that as he falsely accuses David here, that the context in which this psalm is written, uh, David's reputation and uh, well-being, in fact, his very life, are at stake. He says that he feels like a little lamb in a lion's mouth. In fact, perhaps more than one lion, as the plural in, in verse 2, and it says, lest they tear my soul apart. And, and the reference to the, the assembly in verse 7 suggests that, that Cush may have been something of a ringleader who is here stirring up this hatred towards David. And so David feels helpless. And from the lion's mouth, he utters this cry for justice utters this cry for God to um, intervene and vindicate him against the false accusations of his enemies and judge them. That's what we have in Psalm 7, a psalm that we want to look at this morning from three vantage points. Uh, First, um, in in our longest point, uh, sort of a summary of the psalm as a whole, looking at uh, Psalm 7 as the cry of David then also as the cry of Christ, and then um, lastly, the cry of the church who sings this psalm in him and with him. So look at me first at the cry of David in Psalm 7. In verses 1 and 2, we see this cry for deliverance where the king says, O Lord my God, in you I take refuge. He says, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And again, we see the plurality of his opponents. They are many. He speaks of them as as pursuing him like a lion pursues its prey, seeking to tear his his soul, or that Hebrew word is the same as the word for life. They're, They're seeking to tear his life apart and rend it in pieces. And he says there's no one to deliver him. He's a helpless lamb Encircled by lions. Boys and girls, can you, can you picture the, the, the scene that David is presenting for us as a, a little lamb when it's, it's surrounded by hungry lions who want to eat him? So in that same way, David is surrounded by those who are falsely accusing him and seeking to ruin his life. And in fact, by their false accusations, perhaps uh, seeking to end his life. There's no one to help him. I think that the two contexts that probably make the most um, sense for this are um, perhaps when David is on the run from Saul, 1 Samuel 24, around there, um, Saul is is seeking his life while many others are gathering around Saul against David. Some of the language in this psalm uh, calls to mind the events of 1 Samuel 24 where David uh, or rather, Saul is seeking David's life, and it says, I think it's in verses 9 or, or 10 there in 1 Samuel 24, that the reason Saul is seeking his life is because he has listened to the words of those who, sought, who say that David sought to do him harm. And so there are false accusations that are being made uh, against David that he's seeking to unjustly hurt the king. That, that fits with the false accusations that we read of in verses 3 and 4 of this psalm where, where someone is saying that David has wrong on his hands that has repaid his friend with evil. He has plundered his enemy 
without cause. And so perhaps as, as Saul is seeking David's life, one of his Benjaminite loyalists is charging David with wrong to justify their ending David's life. And David is helpless. Or the other context that may fit with, the, with um, David's helplessness surrounded by those who accuse him of wrong is Second Samuel uh, chapter 16 with Shimei, that other Benjaminite, who charges David with all the blood of the house of Saul, making similar accusations to what we see in, in verses 3 and 4. And so Shimei, remember we actually read this a few weeks ago as we looked at Psalm 3, it says that he, he um, curses David and he flings dust at him. That's why David speaks in verse 5 of his glory being laid in the dust. So there are Benjaminite men like Shimei or like Saul's patriots in 1 Samuel 24 who hate David. And whoever Cush is, um, his words are putting David's life in danger and there is no one to intervene. So here he pleads his case to the only one who can save. And then after this cry for deliverance in the opening verses, he, he then claims his innocence. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done what they they say I've done, if I've actually uh, done these things that they're accusing me of, if there really is wrong in my hands, if I really have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, then let my enemy pursue my life and overtake it. Let him trample my very life into the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Here David pronounces a self-curse, just like Job does in Job 31, saying, if I have done this, then let me be judged. He is so confident of his innocence that he puts his, his life and his crown on the line. In verse 5, his glory being a reference to his royal glory, as God's anointed king, where he is so sure of his righteousness that he puts his crown on the line. You see this same confidence in verses 8 and 9 where he says, judge me according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. And ask God to test the mind and heart to establish the righteous. David is sure that he's innocent of the claims they're making. And so he pleads his case before God, he, he claims his innocence, pronouncing a curse upon himself if he has done what they say he's done. Cries for deliverance in verses 1 and 2. Claims his innocence in verses 3 through 5 and 8 and 9. And then he calls for justice in, in the rest of the psalm where he asks the divine judge to appoint a judgment to gather the assembly of his enemies before him and judge the people's. So the imagery here is that of a courtroom. David has just made the the case to the divine judge that he is innocent. And now he goes yet a step further and says, Now, Lord, give me justice against those who have wrongly accused me. Deuteronomy chapter 19 says that if a malicious witness, a, a false witness rises to accuse a man of wrong, then the judge is supposed to diligently inquire as to whether he's really done what he says he has. And if that man has falsely accused his brother, then Deuteronomy 19 says, you shall do to him what he intended to do to his brother. 
And so what David is doing here is he's appealing to God's law and saying, Lord, just as, as the judge in Deuteronomy would inquire into a case and false accusations would then rebound back on that wicked man, let that be so in my case. Give me justice against those who seek my life. He says, arise in anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, the the whole assembly of those who unjustly seek my life. This is the same assembly from Psalm 2, who set themselves against the Lord and his anointed. Uh, This assembly that David says, gather them around you and judge them. This is the the opposite of the congregation of the righteous in Psalm 1.5. This is the anti-church, the synagogue of Satan, the seed of the serpent. He says, judge them. Do to them what you said you would do in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Don't just vindicate me by overturning their false verdict, but let there be actual justice. Where verse 8, you you judge the peoples, and verse 9, the evil of the wicked comes to an end. Establish the righteous, but toward the wicked be a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. David is praying in the same way that he did in Psalm 5 for the wrath of God against those who hate his kingdom. And again, this prayer is not prayed purely for his own sake, but as goes the king, so goes the kingdom. And so by praying that God would judge the enemies of the anointed king, um, David is praying for the well-being of all God's people. He's praying, uh, verse 10, for all the upright in heart to be saved. Dale Ralph Davis says, David's bout here with unjust suffering, danger, and wrong stirs him up to ask God to suppress the evil of those who would crush his people. His own trouble stimulates his prayers for the suffering people of God as a whole. His individual lament becomes an ecclesiastical lament as he prays for all the people of God. This is not some evil, vindictive prayer, but in it we see a concern for for righteousness where the king prays Deuteronomy 19 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 back to God. He prays for God to do what he said he'll do and bring justice and he prays for all God's people not being consumed with himself. And even as he prays for God to bring justice against those who hate his kingdom, notice in verse 12, he also calls them to repentance. He says, if a man does not repent, then God will wet his sword. David is warning these enemies of the fate that awaits them. David is preaching the gospel to them. David is reminding them that they either must flee from their sin or face God's wrath. Do you see the kindness of the king in this call to repentance? This is the same thing we saw in Psalm 2, where even as the nations are raging and plotting against the Lord's anointed king, he says, now therefore be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear and trembling, come and kiss the son, find refuge under him. 
Do you see the kindness of the king and his call to repentance against the very ones who hate him? And you see how praying these psalms of justice then is not incompatible with an evangelistic heart. He's, he's calling them here to flee to God for mercy. If they will not, then they will face the wrath of God, the wrath of verse 12. But if they heed his warning and flee to him, then they will know the mercy of verse 10. David is reminding us that imprecation, uh, prayer for, for judgment, is not the only thing that we pray in the midst of injustice. But we pray to God for deliverance either through the judgment or the conversion of our enemies. And we leave it to God, which he will do. David is here showing us how not to pray with a hatred for our enemies, but how even this kind of prayer is compatible with God's call to love our neighbor. A call, by the way, which existed not just in the New Testament, but, but already in the Old. Leviticus chapter 19, book of Proverbs. Even in those books, we see a call to love even our enemies. And so a prayer like this for justice is not incompatible with God's command that we love our enemies. David here calls them to repentance. David here models for us the kind of posture that we need to have as we pray in the face of injustice. That as we pray to God for justice, we are okay with that justice being redirected perhaps to Christ who bears it in his body on the cross. As these same enemies of the kingdom become his friends who kiss the son, David is urging them to repent. But if they will not, and he calls upon God to do what he must. But there's one other thing about David's posture. Even as he, he prays this, he does so in the context of having just asked God in verse 9 to test his heart and test his mind. This is a lot like Psalm 139, where just after pronouncing the judgment of God upon Christ's enemies, David says, search me and know my heart and see if there is any wicked way within me. David is doing that same thing in verse 9. He's saying, search me and see if this prayer is being prayed out of a spirit of vindictiveness. It's not. And neither should ours be. But we pray for justice with a concern for the glory of God, for the well-being of his people, for the salvation of our enemies, and if they will not repent, then judgment. Well, that being said, David then goes on in the rest of verse 12 through 16 to, to detail the judgment that will come for those who do not repent. The judgment for which he prays, describing God as uh, wetting his sword and bending his bow. And so a minute ago, that the image that he was placing before us, the, the illustration that the psalm was providing for us is that of a judge in a courtroom. And now the, the image is not so much of, of a courtroom, but of the judge rolling up his sleeves, uh, getting down from his chair and bringing justice himself. In fact, just as verse 2 described the enemy as a ferocious beast, a, a lion who hunts down and devours his prey, so God here will hunt them down with his weapons. He's like a mighty hunter, and the predator now becomes the prey. 
says that God has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. As he sought to do to God's king and God's people, so it will be done to him if he does not repent. That principle of his own evil um, rebounding back on him continues in verses 14 to 16 where David describes the wicked man as pregnant with mischief and, and giving birth to lies. Where He digs a hole for his enemy with, with his false accusations but he ends up falling into that hole himself. Kind of like Haman in the book of Esther. He is hanged on the gallows that he prepared for his victim. Something like that occurs in this psalm, where the mischief of Cush the Benjaminite, the the mischief of the enemies of the king, returns on his own head, and on his skull, his violence descends. And there again we see uh, that that little uh, Genesis 3.15 allusion, where it is the head of the serpent seed that is being crushed. David is praying for God to do what he said he will in that first gospel promise to save his people by crushing the head of his enemies. And as David looks forward to this, it leads him to praise. As his cry for deliverance, his claim of innocence, and his call for justice throughout this whole psalm lead in verse 17 to his call to worship. David's response to the prayed-for justice of God is to give thanks to the Lord for his righteousness, his justice, and to sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. David here in verse 17 reminds us that the justice of God is something we're to praise him for. It's not something that we're to bury in the back of our hymnals and never sing of, but we rejoice in his righteousness. We jump for joy at his justice, which I would argue is not simply an Old Testament thing, but is the very thing that we see Christ in the New Testament doing and teaching us to do also. And so the time that we have left, I want to think about Psalm 7 in relation to Christ. The New Testament tells us that the Psalms are the word of Christ and they speak of him. So I want to think about this Psalm in relation to Christ and then also to us as we sing it in him and with him. What does Psalm 7 teach us about Jesus? Maybe a good place to start is in those lines about the king's innocence in verses 3 and 4. Verses 8 and 9, where the king says that there is no wrong in his hands, and that God can test his mind and and test his heart and will see integrity and righteousness. Now, we can grant that David, in this particular situation, may be able to say that, but ultimately, there is only one man who can truly say, there is no wrong in my hands. Only one who can say, judge me according to my righteousness. Who when he stands before the judgment of God can say, when you look into my heart and when you look into my mind, you will see integrity and you will see righteousness. That one is not David. Anyone who's read 2 Samuel 11 knows that. But that one is David's son who was here speaking for him and speaking through him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his his, 
a marvelous little book on the Psalms, said that, that sometimes as, as we are, are praying through the Psalms, we, we come across these Psalms that, that we feel cannot cross our lips as our own prayers, but they, they make us falter. They offend us. They make us suspect that here, someone else is praying. That the one who is here affirming his innocence, who is calling for God's judgment, who has come to such infinite depths of suffering, is Christ himself. He is the one who is able to say that his hands are clean and his mind is righteous in a way that David could not, in a way that we cannot but who nevertheless was falsely accused by those who hated him. As in the case with David, false accusations that if accepted would lead to his death, would lead to his glory being buried in the ground. They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of treason. They accused him of doing the the things that he did by the power of Satan. And by their false accusations, the the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees, they did indeed tear him apart like a lion. Isn't that what we sang in Psalm 22, that Psalm of the Cross, where twice Christ, the prophet, says uh, that they open their mouths against him like a lion. He says again at the very turning point of the psalm, Lord, save me from the lion's mouth as they surrounded him and sought to devour him. And like David here in verse 2, Christ is the one who had none to deliver him. But his friend Judas betrayed him. His disciples fled. Zechariah says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus says that was fulfilled as they all deserted him. His inner circle of three fell asleep in the hour when he needed them most. His, his right-hand man denied him when his life was at risk. David was speaking hyperbolically when he said that there was no one to help him. But Christ literally fulfilled what David poetically described of himself. That's how the Psalms work. David was a prophet, and when he spoke of his suffering, he spoke beyond himself to the Christ who was in him. One theologian said, this is supremely a psalm of the Lord's redemptive sufferings at the hands of injustice. Line by line, it inscribes the mounting drama of the passion. To pray this psalm properly is to enter into the mind of the Lord in the context of his redemptive passion. It is not given, first of all, to express our own personal feelings, but rather to discover something of his. To read and pray this psalm is, in some sense, to to taste the bitterness and the gall as if we are here given a little peek into the mind and heart of the Lord Jesus, who just like David, as he suffered unjustly, sought not vengeance himself, but entrusted himself to God. 1 Peter 2, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Christ fulfills not only the anguish of those opening verses, but even the prayer for justice. There is no wedge between David and Christ when it comes to looking to God for justice. 
In fact, Christ not only prayed for that same justice, but he is also the one who fulfills it, who in a very real sense is the one who answers both David's prayer and his in verse 16 in coming to crush the head of the serpent seed. Even that anthropomorphic imagery of verse 12 where God is described in physical terms as a man coming to inflict judgment is fulfilled in the man, Christ Jesus. In his book, God Is, uh, Mark Jones makes the point that, that when God throughout the Old Testament is, is um, described and has um, physical body parts attributed to him and physical or, or human emotions attributed to him, that that is not simply to make us understand his purposes towards his people, but is ultimately to set the stage for the Incarnation. When God would indeed take on bodily form in his son, would suffer, die, rise, and ascend, and then come again to judge the living and the dead. That's Christ in verses 12 and 13. That's Christ crushing the serpent's head in verse 16. He both enters into the experience of David and prays this psalm, and then also becomes the fulfillment of David's hope. Think about this even a little bit more tonight as we look at the return of Christ in Lord's Day 19. But, but this is what we're praying for as we pray the Psalms of Justice. And Christ leads us in praying them. And in that praise of verse 17 to the God of righteousness, who will not let injustice get the last word, but will right every wrong, who, who is not um, aloof to, to the suffering and injustice that his people and his image bears experience in this world. But verse 11 is a God who feels indignation every day. He is not a God who looks the other way at injustice, but is a God who will right every wrong and who has proven his commitment to do so already in the cross of his son, where he goes to such great lengths to bring justice that he would sacrifice his own son. He's proven to the cross. He has proven in the promises of the judgment to come that he is a God of righteousness, a God of justice who then gives us these psalms to pray by union with him until he comes again. So that's the last thing that I want to think about, the the church's use of Psalm 7. If this is the prayer of Christ and, and we are united to him, then in him and with him, we pray it too. Though we are not righteous in ourselves, united to him, we pray or we sing as we already have Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. We pray, Lord, judge us according to his righteousness. Vindicate us when evil men seek to do us harm. When they falsely accuse your church and say all kinds of evil things against us, as Christ says in Matthew 5, that they will. When they torture North Korean Christians in labor camps or kill them on the spot. When young female Christian converts in Somalia are forced into marriages where they are victimized and harmed. When Eritrean Christians are imprisoned, when Islamic extremists uh, kidnap and target Christians in Libya, when believers in Nigeria are dispossessed of their land, when uh, Hindu extremists in India attack believers and, and attack churches while the government looks the other way. 
These things, as, as we read about them, and we ought to, should make us cry out to God for justice, praying, verse 6, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of the enemies of your people. These psalms are given to us to make us pray for the church under the cross. These psalms are not given to us so that we might have some ammunition when somebody uh, cuts us off in the, the, uh, the expressway. That's not what these psalms are about. These psalms are given to us to broaden our horizon and make us pray for the church under the cross, to make us identify with marginalized Christians throughout the world as we lift our prayers above ourselves, to make us pray wider prayers that are more reflective of the body of Christ as she shares in the suffering of her King. Not only does a psalm like this help us to intercede for the church under the cross, But even as you think about victims of abuse and all sorts of injustice, even among us, around us, victims of heinous slander and evil, inner city violence, terrorism, Psalm 7 teaches us to pray to God for justice, to rejoice in his righteousness to believe in his anger that he is a God who feels indignation every day and in all distress and persecution with uplifted head to confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me and will cast all his enemies and ours into everlasting condemnation but will take all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. That's what the Psalms teach us to long for and to pray for. Not just for ourselves, but for our brothers all over the world and our sisters all over the world. Asking God to search our hearts as we pray and remove a vindictive spirit from us, but also to remove an apathetic spirit from us where we don't care about injustice but to pray that he would avenge the wrong that is done to his people, either through the conversion of their enemies, verse 12, or if not, through their judgment. Verse 17, giving him thanks and praising his name. When a 19th century Southern Presbyterian said, if righteous retribution is one of the glories of the divine character... And if it is right that God should desire to exercise it, then it cannot be wrong for his people to desire him to exercise it. Inasmuch as it is righteously inflicted by God, it must be right in him and therefore must be, when in his hand, a proper subject of satisfaction to the godly. He's saying if it's right for God to bring justice, then it's right for us to long for justice. It's right for us to rejoice in the God of justice and to put our hope in the God of justice. Against the roaring lion of evil, we set the victory of the righteous lion of Judah, both his past victory and his future victory, saying, even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen. God of justice, We pray, rise up to save the abused of the earth and abused of your church. 
For only by your might can the forces of evil be driven back. We call upon your name through the merits of your son Jesus. It's not because of our own goodness and our own righteousness that we pray this. But united to Christ, the righteous one, having repented as the king calls us to in verse 12, Lord, we pray on behalf of your saints throughout the earth. We pray on behalf of the unborn who are slaughtered throughout the earth that you would bring justice. We pray even so come, Lord Jesus. Amen.